You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. On the NBA Beat is back. I'm Aaron Fishman alongside Lauren Lee Chen. Today's guest will help us review the NBA draft that happened last Thursday. It's Sam Vecini of CBS Sports. Covers the NBA draft every season. Also a college hoops and NBA writer for them. His podcast, Game Theory, can be found on iTunes and Vecini.com. With so much to discuss, why delay? Let's just get into it. What's up, Sam? Thanks for joining us. Hey, how we going, guys? It's going well. It's long overdue to talk about the draft with you. It was last Thursday. We want to get all your thoughts, so thanks again for coming on. No, it's a very nice time now because uh, it's not insane for me anymore. I get to... Uh, kind of sit back and just kind of hang out until at least free agency starts. And then uh, everything's a madhouse again. But for the next, you know, say, three days, uh, I get that three-day respite, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I can understand that. It seems like the dust is kind of settling. July 1st is going to be craziness with all the rumors uh, leading up to it. And if last year was any indication, I don't know if this year can replicate what last year was or if we even want that. But Yeah, lots to talk about with the draft. Before we really get into some of the analysis, just tell us a little bit about your method for how you assess these guys year in and year out. Yeah, uh, that that gets pretty tricky. So I go out and I see a lot of these kids live even most of the time before they get to college, right? A a guy like Marquise Chris, who came out of nowhere, uh, my first experience with him was... I would say probably in high, not in high school and college, but like all of the elite level prospects. And then I would say like a good amount of the just top 100, maybe like 60% of the top 100, 70% of the top 100 kids. I get to see them at AAU events, stuff like that. And then what else I do is I just, you know, kind of go from there to start building and ranking and, uh, you know, evaluating essentially. And then, from there, I once the draft year hits, uh, I need to start trying to figure out where do all of these guys slot in. So I talk to uh, people around the league. I talk to uh, you know people in scouting uh, capacities, in front office capacities, in uh, just any capacity, and any person that I feel is smart and won't uh, won't necessarily lie to me or anything like that. So uh, I make sure and kind of get a nice breadth of knowledge about uh, where people are on these players. Uh, I watch a ton of film on them, obviously, from their high school and uh, for international kids from their uh, either pro or under 19, 18 levels. Uh, You know, for domestic kids, uh, I've seen a majority of them. I watch a decent amount of tape on them, either be it, you know, McDonald's All-American Games, Hoop Summits, whatever. And obviously all of the college kids I've seen already. 
because you know I cover college basketball full time. So mm-hmm. once you get there, it's you kind of have all of the knowledge and you just kind of have to parse through it. So that's the nuts and bolts, I would say, I guess. And once you have to parse through it is where you obviously uh, get a little bit tricky, but right. it's the more fun part to me at least. How was the actual draft for you, all your work up to that point culminating um, with that night? Uh, that's an interesting question, I guess. Uh, no, no, I'm not making fun of your question. I'm just trying to like figure <laughs> out what I, uh, what I think of it just being a one night event. I guess everyone's, you know, work kind of comes down to singular events, right? Like you build towards something, build towards something, build towards something. And no, I just mean like, hits. like you don't enjoy the journey or the process. It's like, oh, it's over with after one night. I just meant like, how did the night go? You were talking before also. Oh, uh, Okay. Uh, about how you're you're grading the picks live and that was a little bit of a challenge right yeah no so what my experience was with the nba draft was i was on cbs's uh nba draft show like live so i have a a camera in front of me while i'm you know grading picks in real time it gets insane whenever like you have a production a production person for the video team in your ear asking like hey we need to get you on this next hit okay and i'm just like okay cool i'm in the middle of like grading a pick what one person who really helps me out adrian wojnarowski because him getting me way easier because I'm able to grant picks for cbs way faster it's very nice and uh, i thank that great man for helping me and then I do team-by-team uh, team grades after, and I get a little bit more of a big-picture look that I think is probably more accurate. <laughs> this draft was unique because of a number of factors. One of them was the steep increase in salary cap around the league. And also, first-round picks were largely concentrated among four particular teams. The Celtics, 76ers, Nuggets, and Suns each had three first-round picks apiece. How'd that change the draft and also your confidence with your picks going into it? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, there were tiers, I would say. There was the one, two tier, the three through nine tier. A lot of people had three through eight, but I like Jaco Pertle a little bit more than what I think a lot of people, where they were on him. So then you have the 10 through like 25 tier and then the 25 through like 60 tier. So all of those players within those groups were essentially interchangeable. So that got, uh, that got difficult in the fact that this draft was so uh, unpredictable ended up, uh, I don't even know how it even got to where it got to. Like, I, I don't know how we ended up with Giorgios Papianis going 13th overall, Bond Baker going 10th overall. Like there were so many surprises that even like going outside of like the tier ranking system, there were just so many shockers. Gershon Yabasella, it was a weird night. Yeah, you said it. There were so many surprises up and down the draft board. After all your research and reporting, what would you say, either broadly or as specific as you want, what would you call the biggest surprises on draft day? The biggest surprises outside of the ones that I mentioned. Uh, those three were definitely the ones that got me. Uh, Karis LeVert going in the first round, I didn't expect that at all. He had his name called at 20th overall by the Nets. That was pretty shocking to me because this is a kid that are from, you know, this guarantee in terms of the way that the way he was going to perform in the NBA. But then you look at what was the problem with him in terms of injuries. I mean, this is a kid that has multiple foot surgeries. He has 
all sorts of question marks about how his game is going to translate, despite being six foot seven and you know having some length and being able to shoot and handle the ball and stuff. Like he has talent. And a year ago, if you'd have said he went twentieth overall, it wouldn't have been that crazy. But with the injuries stacked on top of what his talent level is uh that didn't really strike me as a first round pick in any way torian prince going number 12 was a little bit of a surprise but i will say that i kind of thought that atlanta was going to do something like that at number 12 i I kind of wrote within my mock draft i said like i think that they're going to take someone that they've worked out here or that they're familiar with here uh despite the fact that it's being number 12 i actually picked malachi richardson there because it kind of fit best with where I was trying to shake things out, but Malachi ends up going 22 to Sacramento. So it's a, it kind of shows perfectly the wildness of draft night where you can even like kind of have the right idea on the way things are going to go. And it just, there were so many options places. Do you think teams wanting to draft and stash a lot of players led to the preponderance of international players getting selected a lot in the first round? Uh, a lot of people were talking about how teams were worried about having enough open roster spots, especially those four teams that we mentioned who had three first round picks going in and were trying to trade away some of those picks. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Drafting and stashing was, I don't know that it was necessarily prevalent throughout the first round, but it certainly shook up the first round in a lot of ways. About all of these international kids is that none of them really wanted to be stashed outside of like a few of them. It's basically the reason you saw Yabu yeah, like go 16. Uh, he is willing to be stashed in all likelihood. Um, and the Celtics obviously had eight picks and needed someone to be stashed. So 16, Gershon Yabusele, even though you have quite a few problems in terms of your game, we'll take you. Guys like Timothy Luwawu, who wants to come over, I, I believe immediately that was a pretty good situation of a guy that kind of fell Juan Ernan Gomez I believe wants to come over soon but may be willing to be stashed so he ended up 15th to Denver so he's anyone that was more I think 50-50 on it was probably in a better position than like hardliners who really wanted to stay overseas like an Ivica Zubats who was drafted by the Lakers at 32 that's a kid I at 15 on my board and I, I think if he would have been more willing to potentially stay overseas, he might have been able to do that. But the factor that, you know, all of these teams had multiple picks and the factor that everyone kind of thinks this draft sucks in terms of domestic prospects made teams going into this uncertain free agency period want to say, OK, we want to keep our rosters as clean as possible and have as few of these guys over here now as possible or as potentially possible. So I think that that was where you saw quite a few stashes come into play. Yeah. And speaking about those domestic prospects, there were a few that dropped way lower than they were projected in a lot of mock drafts, specifically, I think Scala Bissier, DeJounte Murray and Deontay Davis went much lower than a lot of people had them going. What do you think contributed to that fall? I would say that Scal and Murray particularly both had pretty volatile draft stocks. I mean, I had Murray at number 32 on my big board. So like the Spurs taking him at 29 is like actually good value to me 
in a way that a team taking him at 13th would have been, which is where he ended up on my final mock drafts. I kind of bought into it and I was sitting there in the middle of our uh, NBA Slack chat room, just cursing, just like, why did I believe in like, why did I do this? Like, I know that he's not good at basketball yet. Why would I do this? Um, <laughs> Scal was a weird one where the teams that I think did the most homework on him ended up just kind of going different directions. Like you look at Orlando, Orlando did quite a bit of homework on him. Orlando ends up trading for Serge Ibaka and uh, taking a guy into Montes Sabonis that is, you know, just a little bit more ready. Uh, Thon maker. I think that Milwaukee just kind of felt comfortable with Thon in a way that was insane to me. I think that the jazz had number 12. They probably brought him in for a workout. They definitely brought in Deontay Davis for a workout. And they end up trading their pick for George Hill. So I think that a lot of the teams in that like 10, 11, 12, 13 range uh, ended up moving their picks and deciding to go different directions. It's kind of the way that trades shake up the draft process because you can only predict so much going into it. And then once you predict it, uh, it might just go off the rails really quickly. With the thing about Thon Maker recently um, that's really been talked about, I think, over the last week and maybe even before that, um, if you're aware of it, about his age, that's a major concern, right? Given that he's such a project and so raw right now, the difference between 19 and potentially 23 would be pretty big, right? Yeah. I mean, here's what I will say about maker having that kind of problem in terms of whether or not he's that age so if he's 23 it throws off his development cycle pretty substantially and throws his performance to this state pretty heavily into question so last year scalabissier and he were at hoop summit and scal just destroyed him day after day in practice and really just kind of dominated him in a way that would be very concerning if Thon was 22 years old at that stage. These things about him aren't new necessarily. I mean, teams have been trying to do their research on it for a long time. I thought it was not great how it came out on draft day. It struck me strangely that like there was a report that teams had taken him fully off their draft boards. Uh, because I, I would be surprised if that was the case, specifically due to the age concern. It was just a very odd, very strange report to me. And now that we're starting to see a little bit more of it, there's something on Reddit, obviously. I mean, the Reddit thing, who knows? I'm not you know, discounting the person by any means. Uh, I just don't have enough context behind right. what he, what it is he's saying. So who knows with that? There are just going to be rumors out there about all these kids from, you know, I don't want to say like third world countries, but like different countries. I mean, there are questions out there about Ursan Ilyasova still. Ursan is from Turkey. Um, there are questions out there about Zhou Qi from China, and those probably won't go away either. It's The questions are going to be there from about players that don't necessarily have the proper birth certificate or whatever they're looking for. So... I try to just kind of evaluate based on what we know. And if it's a question like with Joe Chi, where I feel kind of okay about 
thinking he might be a little bit older. I just kind of work that in. But if he's mm-hmm. if it's still very questionable, like it is for thought, and I think that it's still a very open thing that NBA teams have done their due diligence on and have come away kind of fifty fifty on, maybe, maybe not, who knows. I, I just kind of go with what we got until then. Yeah. Discussing the number one overall pick, Ben Simmons, I think this is kind of ridiculous. There are some questions about, and I don't think it's legitimate, about if he has a winner's mentality after LSU didn't even get to the tournament. Talk a little bit about that, if that matters or if it's overrated, but also how ready is he to contribute right away and and, um, challenge for Rookie of the Year this season? Yeah, I mean, I think he'll be fine uh, right off the bat in terms of play. Uh, I had been... You know, at number one on my board, obviously, I'm a pretty big fan of his game. He's number one in a week draft, though. Uh, I think that that's fair to say. He's a really solid, really athletic prospect. You can get to the rim whenever he wants. Obviously, he's a terrific passer, really good rebounder. But he does more than the winner's mentality thing, which I think is crazy. It's whatever. Like he, he won, I think, multiple national high school championships like he does have a pretty Australian mentality in terms of you know doing whatever it is for the team and passing and whatever he needs to do one thing I will note is he has a propensity to pick up some garbage timey stats from time to time not almost like Rondo Ian in terms of like kind of chasing stats and uh, doing that which is a little bit worrisome I don't think that uh, it kind of reflects on his defensive game, which is quite substandard at this stage, despite him having a ton of potential in the modern NBA. And it uh, kind of reflects on the fact that he hasn't really improved his game all that much while he was at LSU. He just kind of did what he did and went from there. I think those two things are a little bit more concerning than the winner's mentality thing, whatever that means. Uh, I think if you put him on the floor, he's going to play hard. and He, he really does want to be great uh, as an NBA player. He wants to be a number one overall pick that becomes a great in the NBA. So uh, I'm not worried about the winner's mentality thing, but I am worried about some of the things he does on the floor sometimes that are a little bit troublesome. One of the biggest stories coming into the draft was what the Celtics were going to do with all of their picks. You've mentioned this before. They had eight total picks, three in the first round. They tried extremely hard to trade it away, trying to get guys like Jimmy Butler or Gordon Hayward and ultimately couldn't find a package that worked. When they made their picks, especially in the first round, they confused a lot of people with their picks of Jalen Brown and Gershon Yabusele especially. But now I guess people are saying that Jalen Brown has as good of a chance to be a star in this league as a lot of people. So how would you assess their draft night? I mean, it's always going to be that kind of spin right after the draft, right? right. I think that Jalen does have you know as much all-star potential as anyone uh, beyond Brandon Ingram, Ben Simmons, and uh, probably Dragon Bender too, to be honest. But he's also a guy that has some significant flaws in his game that he has to work on. This kid cannot shoot the basketball from deep. He doesn't really shoot it all that well off the dribble. He kind of attacks aimlessly on offense from time to time and turns the ball over a ton. He's a really explosive athlete that's really long and works really hard at his game. And oftentimes, six foot seven with a seven foot wingspan at 225 pounds and tremendous athleticism just kind of plays no matter what, right? 
but you really do need to improve your game if you're Jalen Brown. I think that his upside is there. You can see the upside, and you can see why people will spin it as such, but the questions are definitely there. I've kind of talked about the Gershon Yabusele pick. I wasn't a fan of it in any realm. I think I might have given it like a D or something on my thing. Like, it was bad. Um, Ante Jigic is a really good pick to me, actually. Uh, he was he was tremendous this year uh, in, in Serbia. He was just a stud. He, he was he's a six foot eleven center who uh, played for Red Star and just dominated. He averaged like fourteen points a game, eight rebounds over like twenty five minutes a game. And at nineteen years old, those numbers hold up really well. To uh, it's actually a year ahead of Nikola Jokic is pace, uh, who just finished third in the Rookie of the Year race with the Denver Nuggets, what he did over in the Adriatic League the year before coming over. So I'm a big fan of his. I think he's going to be a really solid NBA player. To get him at 23 was really good. And then once you get to the second round, I mean, I don't know why they didn't just take Deontay Davis at 31 instead of trading for this Clippers pick that is a lottery-protected pick. You can, you'd basically be getting an extra first-round pick with Deontay Davis there, and I know for a fact that that's how Memphis saw it. And then they trade 35 with that, where they could have picked up another solid piece, like a Malcolm Brogdon, a Chinanu Onowaku, the guy who went 35, Rade Zagorats. Like, there were so many options there. I, I wish they wouldn't have made that deal. I think it was short-sighted. I know that you have to consolidate some of your picks, but it was not a great move, in my opinion. 45, they get Demetrius Jackson, 51. Ben Bentle, two guys who could have gone near the end of the first round. Fine. Good job. Uh, but it's still 45 and 51. It's a little bit too little, too late, in my opinion. And then Abdul Nader at number 58 was uh, a guy who agreed to be stashed in the D-League. And they'll work with him and try to improve his game. So on the whole, I wasn't really a fan because I think they made two pretty critical mistakes in terms of I would have just taken Chris Dunn at number three and continued to be able to negotiate with Chicago and with Philadelphia, who clearly both wanted Chris Dunn. I think that you call their bluff, and if worse comes to worse, you end up with a guy in Chris Dunn that is really good at basketball and who I had at number three on my board. Obviously, the Celtics felt differently, and I think that the second critical mistake is making Gershon Yabuselli at 16, and then third, it they end up moving 31 and 35 with good players still on the board. And then on the other side of the coin, on your post-draft grades you gave to each team, the, an article on CBS Sports, you identified three clear-cut winners in this draft. Correct me if I'm wrong, the Lakers, Sixers, and Grizzlies. What did those teams do especially well on that draft? Yeah, the Philadelphia gets Ben Simmons. That's obviously great. Uh, they didn't outthink themselves. And then they end up getting two guys in Timotei Luawu and Furkan Korkmaz, two players from overseas. Luawu is more of an athlete. Korkmaz is more of a feel shooter, creator type on the wing. Luawu more of an athletic motor kind of guy on the wing. And they filled needs and got high upside players there. That's about as strong as you can do, I think, in addition to Ben Simmons. Who, and they got, more importantly, they got guys who don't necessarily need the ball to be successful next to Ben Simmons. Number two, you look at Brandon Ingram and Avika Zubats uh, at the Lakers. Uh, they got two top 15 prospects on my board. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Brandon Ingram, obviously, being the second overall, again, didn't outthink themselves, did work there. Number 17 is Memphis. You look at what they do. They get Wade Baldwin, who is a really tremendous fit for what they want. They uh, have questions still with what Mike Conley is going to do in free agency. 
Baldwin fits really well because Baldwin could be Mike Conley's replacement if Conley leaves, or he could play next to Conley due to his size. He's six foot four with a six eleven wingspan. He can kind of shoot a little bit. Like there's a lot that you can really work with there. Then Memphis uh, trades this extra first rounder, a 2019 lottery protected Clippers pick that may or may not end up like actually transferring in the first round. If it doesn't transfer by 2022, it ends up becoming a second round pick. So say the Clippers just totally fall off. They trade Blake Griffin this offseason. Chris Paul leaves next offseason. They're in pretty pretty dire straits probably, right? So they move that pick, which I think is why the Celtics valued it as such. But instead of that, Memphis trades this pick, gets a guy they had rated in the lottery in Deontay Davis. They get a guy at number 35 in Rade Zagorats, who is a very creative wing at six foot eight. He can really dribble the ball, create his own shot. He can shoot uh, from distance, which is terrific. And uh, I think he's going to be an NBA player at some point. So I look at what Memphis did there. They got three players where Coming into the draft, they also took Wong Jay Lin at number 57, but I'm just kind of throwing that away because I don't think you'll have them over. They end up taking three players, though, whenever they only had like one really tangible asset, and that's just great value to me. I think that they nailed it. They got two guys that I had in the top 16 of this draft, and then another guy who's one of my favorite prospects in the draft in Zagarot. So that was a tremendous job. I want to do some quick hits with you. You, you don't need to expound upon these for that long. I'm, I'm just curious just to hear some names. Who are some of the guys that we haven't talked about much, if at all, that you think are most NBA-ready to contribute in a big way? I know it also depends on the fit with their new teams. Does anyone come to mind? I would say uh, Oklahoma, he's going to New Orleans. He's going to be able to contribute relatively quickly. Uh, Chris Dunn is tough. He's physical. He's long. Uh, he did do a Ricky Rubio there, but it wouldn't surprise me to see Chris Dunn play uh, quite a few minutes for Minnesota just because that backcourt beyond Rubio and Zach Levine doesn't really have a ton. Uh, he's ready to play right now, though. I'm trying to think. Denzel Valentine is a really good fit. Chicago's scheme. Valentine is a really smart basketball player, passes the ball really well, shoots it really well, could kind of act like a point three and a point two, point three kind of guy um, in that offense where he, you know, creates looks next to Jimmy Butler, shoots space in the floor, does a lot of different stuff. I'm trying to think of other, you know, ready guys. DeAndre Bembry, I think, might be ready too to help that Atlanta team at number 21. Just to go through a, some other ones, what about of the American college players that you've scouted a lot, the biggest project whom you're most confident will be worth the wait? The biggest project that I am most confident will be worth the wait. I guess that you kind of have to call that Marquise Chris. He is, you know, six foot ten, uh, jumps out of the gym and plays like literally with his head at the rim. He can shoot the basketball a lot, but he's very much a project defensively. He has no idea where he's going. Most of the time on that end of the floor, he fouled out of 10 Pac-12 games this year, which is pretty terrifying. But that's a guy that I think could eventually make good on his tremendous physical gifts. If you would have made me ask or answer that question a month ago, I probably would have said Scal. But Chris is probably the guy that I think most NBA scouts would answer with. And... I think you're going to say Malcolm Brogdon, but I, I, I was watching college basketball a lot this year, actually more than I had in 
previous years. And he was just so good, so solid defensively. He scored a lot of points, really high basketball IQ. I know you're high on him too. Is it just because teams may have not thought that he has that much room to grow, that he's kind of reached his ceiling? Is that why he was around for so long? Right. I mean, Malcolm is a guy that's six foot six, has long arms, kind of does everything you ask of him. He's a terrific defender, moves really well off the ball. But, you know, I think teams would really want to ask of him to be a better athlete, probably. Um, He's just not that explosive vertically. He's plays like an old man game offensively in a lot of ways. And I don't think that's a thing that a lot of teams want. So uh, it's going to be a very situational thing for Malcolm. Luckily, he goes to Milwaukee, where uh, I think it's just a tremendous fit, and he'll figure it out there pretty immediately. And I think he'll be the kind of role player that Norman Powell was this year for Toronto, where everyone's like, wow, how the hell did this guy fall to the second round? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and I think that's going to be what you see from Brogdon. We don't take these life decisions lightly. I, I know that it's a big decision for these players coming out of college or wherever they're coming from. And it's, it, those decisions aren't made in a vacuum. But from purely a basketball standpoint, it seemed like there were a lot of college players that erred in deciding to leave school early. Are there a couple that stand out to you who really would have benefited from returning to school at least another year? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would Roy Williams probably could have helped himself a decent amount out of Indiana. He ends up going undrafted. That was the kind of guy where if he could have really improved his jump shot, you could have seen him becoming a selection. Robert Carter at Maryland, if he could have continued to work on his body and prove himself defensively, prove himself in a bigger role, that probably would have helped. Wayne Selden out of Kansas also. Uh, if he would have shown more consistency shooting the basketball, I think he would have really helped himself by returning. You talked a little bit ago about the potential for Buddy Heald to be one of the NBA-ready players coming out of this draft, especially since he's being put next to Anthony Davis on the Pelicans, do you think that pairing has a lot of potential to help that Pelicans team turn around a season that they would rather forget that was marred by a lot of injuries last year? Yeah, I think that Buddy will certainly be counted on. He's a tremendous shooter. Will probably take some time. He's a very unique off-ball mover in that he's very reactionary to what's happening around him. So... I think that he's going to find success early. Teams will kind of figure it out, I think, a little bit later in the season. He might go through like a freshman wall, kind of. But early in the year, I think he's going to be able to contribute relatively well. I'm a pretty big fan of him. If he can improve as like a ball handler and as a creator of offense, both in terms of his dribbling ability and his uh, passing ability, this kid could be an all-star, but I'm not quite there on him actually doing that at the next level. I think you're talking more about you know, just a really solid player in the Kyle Korver-ish, J.J. Redick-ish mold. And this is going to be the final question. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us. But in recent years, there's been a trend of international players deciding to spend time playing college in the United States. This year's draft, people that come to mind are guys like Domata Sabonis, do you think that trend's going to continue in the future? And what are the pros and cons for those players to play college in the United States? 
Yes, I think that trend is absolutely continuing into the future. Right? There's no doubt about that. You look at what we've seen in the past already with guys like Jakob Pertl and Ben Simmons coming over to America. Simmons obviously coming over a little bit earlier. And then you look at the future. I mean, Arizona has another guy uh, that's going to be doing a similar thing in Lowry Markkinen from Finland. Basically all of Markkinen's team, HBA Marski, which is basically a Finnish high school team that plays in Finland's pro B team. A lot of the kids on their national team, all of those kids are basically coming over to college next season and playing, or at least the ones that graduate. So you look at what the advantages are of this for those kids. It allows kids that still really want to study as well as play basketball uh, get a chance to do both of those things, which is really important for uh, many of these kids that aren't really sure that they're going to be future NBA stars like Bertel was. Uh, just because of the way the system is set up over in over in Europe and Australia, anywhere, you, it's either you go pro and play basketball or you end up uh, just studying and playing basketball recreationally almost with teams that aren't nearly as good and you might not get the same level of coaching. So it allows for a situation that is the best of both worlds that uh, a lot of European kids and that I think a lot of international kids will continue to take advantage of going forward. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for bearing with us through a couple technical issues. And hopefully these next few days, you'll have a little bit of downtime before the free agency period starts ramping up. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it.